I'd like to tell you a fish story this morning. I thought that would be appropriate since yesterday was the first day of trout season. And uh, since most people are thinking about uh, fish, and I think if you were to ask the disciples to tell you their favorite fish story, it would be the event that's recorded in the fifth chapter of Luke. And so I would like to invite you to turn there with me. We all have our favorite fish stories. Usually it's about the one that got away, and uh, I have mine. I was fishing once up in the Sierras with some friends of mine at a little lake called Rock Lake, just north of Lake Tahoe. And uh, I got up real early one morning before they did to go down to the lake to uh, get awake, wash my face, and brush my teeth. And uh, it was uh, this particular lake is very deep, and there's a rock that juts out off into the lake, and, and I was on the end of this rock, and the water was probably 20 or 30 feet deep at that point, but you could see all the way to the bottom. And as I washed my toothbrush off in the water, the foam started to float across the surface of the lake, and it was one of those quiet, windless mornings when there wasn't a ripple on the lake anyplace. And all of a sudden, from the bottom of that lake, a monster came up. It must have, I don't know what it was to this day. It was probably a German brown, but it was about that long. Honest. <laughs> now, I don't know how, how big fish get in Idaho, but that is the biggest trout I ever saw in my entire life. And he came up to the surface and struck at the, at the foam. And uh, all my fishing gear was about 100 yards away at the camp. And so I, you know, you know what happens. Your heart starts to pound. And I backed away and then sprinted the 100 yards up the hill, grabbed my fly rod, stumbled over a couple of sleeping bags on the way, and, and then raced back down to the lake. And I was shaking all over, and the cast was bad, and everything landed in a big pile, and the fish went right down to the bottom of the lake. And I never saw him again, and nobody to this day has ever believed me. He honestly was about that big. That's my fish story. And uh, I'm sure you've got some that you could tell, but if you were to ask the disciples, I'm sure this is the incident that they would point to. Now let's read it, and I'd like to make some comments about it. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. This particular event took place early in the Lord's ministry, probably after the first year, and it was at a point where he was still extremely popular with the common people, especially in Galilee. And I believe the reason he was so well received is because he talked about life, which is what people want to understand. He taught them how to cope with life. He didn't talk about religion. He talked about the way the Word of God related to their experience. He used metaphors and illustrations out of their vocations and out of their disciplines and he indicated in every way that he thoroughly understood them and the kind of problems that they faced. And it was his practice to take the Word of God and relate it to life. Uh, basically, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's a, it's a description of how one becomes happy. It's what the word blessed means. Happy are those who do these things. And he knew that that's what people sought. They wanted satisfaction and realization. They wanted to be fulfilled. Uh, they wanted to experience life to the fullest, and that's what he talked about. And that's why the people loved him. 
And that's why they listened to him. And on this particular day, he was teaching alongside the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is a large body of water in the northern part of the land of Palestine. Uh, if you've ever seen Lake Tahoe or pictures of Lake Tahoe, it, uh, Galilee, look, uh, Galilee looks very much like Tahoe. It's surrounded by mountains, and in Jesus' day, the mountains were much more heavily wooded than they are today. And it's just a beautiful, deep blue body of water. The Lord, uh, like us, liked to get out of the uh, stifling atmosphere of the big city and go out in the country and, and teach people where they were. That was the thing that distinguished our Lord's life, perhaps more than anything else. He went where people were. And he met their needs there. As I've said before, he didn't hang a shingle out on his uh, front door that said, Messiah, here. He went out there where they were. And he taught them about life. He understood them. And they loved him. And they followed him. And on this uh, particular day, as he was walking by the, the lake of Gennesaret, that's just an alternate term for Chinnereth or Galilee, he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. Now we know from the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, in Matthew and in Mark, that these boats belonged to James and John and Simon, as he's called here, or Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were in partnership with the father of James and John, Zebedee. And uh, they had a commercial fisher, fishing enterprise on the north part of uh, the Sea of Galilee and apparently were very successful at it. But on this particular day, they were washing their nets, I'm sure, with a spirit of uh, discouragement because they had, had fished all night and caught nothing. Now, we've all had that experience of fishing all day and catching practically nothing, but when you're a commercial fisherman, that's a rather serious thing when your livelihood is based on the number of fish you catch. And uh, these men, though they had worked hard, as Peter puts it, all night they'd been skunked and uh, no fish. Now, the interesting thing is that the Lord knew it. From the other accounts, we know that he had seen them casting their nets in the water and he had observed that they had caught nothing. And perhaps he perceived that this was an ideal time to teach them something that he couldn't teach them any other way. And so we're told in verse 3, that he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. If you visit Israel today, they'll point out the traditional site where this took place. There's a little bay just to the east of the city of Capernaum, where Peter's house uh, apparently was. And uh, this bay is a natural amphitheater. The shoreline comes up from the lake at a rather steep angle, and people apparently were sitting on the, on the shore, and uh, Jesus was being crowded down toward the uh, water, and so he stepped into Peter's boat, which had been pulled up on the sand there, and, and asked Peter to push off uh, ways from land and anchor, and he sat down in the boat and began to teach the people. The boats were quite large, about the length of one of these benches, and would hold 10 or, or 12 people. So uh, Peter apparently was in the boat, and perhaps uh, his partner, Andrew, and the Lord. Now, I don't know how you would have felt if the Lord had asked you to uh, use your boat as a place from which to teach. I'm sure Peter felt a little bit awkward and maybe a little embarrassed. This wasn't his first contact with the Lord. He had met him 
uh, prior to this time in Bethany beyond Jordan, and they'd spent some time in Jerusalem, and they'd gone to the wedding together at Cana, so they'd had quite a bit of contact with one another, but uh, still I'm sure Peter was a little bit uneasy that the Lord uh, so used his, his fishing boat, but he went along with it. And I'm sure that as he heard the Lord teach, he responded the same way others responded. He touched their hearts. Because again, he talked about the sort of things that people were concerned about. He taught them from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now this wasn't merely a suggestion. Uh, it sounds that way in, the, in our translations. But Jesus' point is, put out your boat into the lake and let down your nets so that we will catch fish. It was more than a suggestion. It was somewhat of a promise. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. Uh, there may have been a storm the night before and the fish uh, just weren't uh, there. These men had been working hard all night, caught nothing, and Peter was reluctant to fish again. I'm sure what went through Peter's mind is what would go through your mind and, and mine in a similar situation. It would be something like this. Now, Lord, I think you're out of your field. I'm the fisherman around here, and you're the preacher. You stick to preaching, and I'll stick to fishing. That seems like a fair and equitable distribution of labor. And I'm not sure you know anything about fishing. I'm not even sure you'd know a fish if you saw one. So uh, I'll just, I'll do the fishing and you do the teaching and I'll help you every way I can. But uh, when it comes to fishing, I'm the master in this field and I really don't need to be told how to do it. I'm sure that went through Peter's mind. Because that's what would go through my mind and, and, uh, I don't feel I'm too unlike Peter. But uh, nevertheless, Peter did what the Lord indicated. He pushed off into the deep water, and he let down his net. And in verse 6, we're told that when they, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to tear. Uh, they were apparently using circular nets, throw nets, that had weights on the, on the perimeter. They would throw these nets out into the water, and the weights would drag the edges of the net down to the bottom, and then they had a drawstring with which they could close the opening and pull the net up into the, into the boat, and as they pulled it into the boat, it began to tear, and the ship began to sink, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat. The word that Luke uses here means to nod with the head, and I think they had their hands so full trying to bail the boat and pull the net in, and that all they could do is say, hey, come over and help us. And James and John were in the other boat on land, and they came over to help them and fill both of the boats so that they began to sink. Boats went down into the water up to the gunnels, and the water started running into the ships and boats, and they were bailing like crazy and trying to row to shore. But when Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's a very striking statement, because what he realized was that he had discounted the Lord's ability to be the master of any field of endeavor. The Lord understood fishing as well as he understood uh, teaching. And Peter just didn't think the Lord understood his vocation. 
but he did. And this apparently was an area of Peter's life which he had excluded from the Lord. And now he saw that what he was doing was sin. We don't think of sin that way. We don't think of uh, our mastery of our subject or our vocation as, as excluding the Lord, but very often that's what happens. We feel that this is an area where we're competent, we can handle, we have the experience and the education and the training, and we don't need the Lord in this area. But Peter realized he did. If his fishing enterprise would ever amount to anything in terms of any eternal value, he had to allow the Lord Jesus the right to invade that area of his life. We read in verse 9 that amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had found their boats, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, the Lord wanted these men to invest their lives in the only really worthwhile project that's going. And that is the catching of men and women. Other things are important and valuable, but the most significant investment of our lives is in bringing men and women into a relationship with Jesus Christ and helping them grow in that relationship. That's what satisfies us. That's what gives meaning to our life. That's what makes our vocation significant. That's what makes every area of our life significant. When we understand that the Lord Jesus wants us to use all that we are, all that we have, as an investment in the lives of other people. That's what Jesus meant when he talked about storing up treasure in heaven. But I don't know of a one of us who isn't frightened by that sort of challenge. We don't like to hear that because we feel inept and inadequate. We don't know how to go about it. We always seem to do the wrong things. I heard a couple of weeks ago of a fellow, he was a barber, and he decided that he wanted to be more, more outspoken about his witness. And so he determined the next person that came into his shop, he was going to share the gospel with him. And a man came and he gave him his haircut, but he just couldn't muster up the courage to say anything, so the man walked out without his saying a word. The second man came in and he tried again to muster up enough courage to speak to him, but he couldn't. The man walked out. Didn't say a word to him. So the third man came in, and he knew this was the one. He had to say something, and he was getting more and more uptight all the time, and he was beginning to shake, so he lathers the fellow up. And he puts one hand on his head and pulls it back, and he has his razor in the other hand, and he says, Friend, are you prepared to die? And the man, man jumped right through the plate glass window and ran right down the street, you know, just slightly under light speed, and, and that was the last he ever saw of him. And, and, and unfortunately, that's the sort of thing most of us... Uh, do to people in our efforts to try to be helpful. We need to learn from the Lord how to go about fishing for men and women, catching them alive. <laughs> we need to learn from him. You know, I, I think there's a process that all of us go through when we first become Christians. We meet the Lord, and we're quite excited about what God has done for us, and uh, we go off zealously to... Uh, 
to do what we think is God's will and sometimes just wreak untold havoc because somehow we think that that God wants us to uh, to bring into our Christian experience all of our own personal experience that we've gained from the from secular from the secular humanistic society around us and we do things the way the world does them we don't understand that God has a has a way of doing what he's doing and we need to learn from him that's what Jesus meant when he says take my yoke upon you and learn from me uh, in those days the symbol of a yoke was the symbol of submission to a rabbi you put yourself under his authority and Jesus is saying if we are truly submitted to him then we will learn from him he has a way of doing things and it's not at all the way the world does things an entirely different way we need to discover how he plans to accomplish this task. Now, there are a number of things that I observe as I read through the Gospels about the way the Lord went about fishing men, fishing for men and women. The first is that the Lord really did have about him a sense of urgency. He understood that we're not playing for nickels and dimes. We're dealing with people's lives. And that's a very serious thing. We can't just gloss over that fact. Uh, the gospel is very clear that men without Jesus Christ are lost. They're wasting their lives. As I understand the New Testament, that's what hell is. It's simply a, it's a sort of cosmic garbage dump. It's a place of wasted lives. They're wasting their lives now and throughout all of eternity. So it's a very serious thing. It's not something we can just gloss over. I, I was reading to the staff some weeks ago a little book by a, a 17th century Puritan uh, writer and scholar, Richard Baxter. And he said this, we must pe Men must be sure that we are in right earnest, as he puts it. You cannot break men's hearts by jesting with them. Now, he didn't mean by that that we can't be lighthearted and fun-loving and humorous because of, of all people in the world, Christians ought to be lighthearted and fun-loving. But he meant in terms of their relationship to God, that's a very serious thing. And while we don't want to be grim, we ought to take seriously the fact that people without the Lord Jesus are lost. There's no other way for them to find wholeness of life and salvation but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to look at people in, in that light and take very seriously their separation from God. But coupled with that was the Lord's sense of the sovereignty of God. He was never uptight about the whole process of evangelism. He didn't buttonhole people. He wasn't grim. He wasn't brash. He was very relaxed about the whole thing because he really did believe that it was God's responsibility to reach into the hearts of people and draw them to himself. That's what Paul means when he says, it is God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. If I were to ask you who brought you to the Lord, you could probably name some name, and that would be accurate up to a point because that's an instrument that God used to bring you into a relationship uh, with himself. But really, it's God's responsibility to draw us, and he'll use any instrument. And if an instrument is not available, he'll pick up another one. No one was ever lost because we failed to give witness. That's God's responsibility. I uh, had a friend while I was in the Army 
who was a squad leader, uh, who had just come back from Korea. And one of the men in his squad, this fellow was a Christian, and one of the men in his squad had been killed in Korea when a flamethrower malfunctioned. And this man bore a heavy sense of guilt throughout his life because he had failed, he believed, to give witness to this man, and now he was lost. And he had never, he had never uh, shared the gospel with him, and he keenly felt the personal responsibility for that. And I tried throughout the months we were together to assure him that no one is ever lost because we fail to give witness. It's God's responsibility. God is sovereign. He's going to see to it that everyone hears clearly what the gospel is. If uh, for some reason we're not available, we lose out. We're, we don't uh, become a part of what God is doing in that person's life. But no one is ever lost because we fail to witness. And so it seems to me that that ought to give us a much more relaxed approach to things. Paul puts it this way, the servant of God must not strive. But be patient with all men, gentle, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That was the Lord's pattern. Wherever he went, he just sowed seeds. He told people about God's love for them. He told them how to come to know God. He was always kind. The only people with whom Jesus was harsh were people who were self-righteous. And normally they were the religious folk who knew the truth and had rejected it. And I think the reason the Lord was so hard on people like that is because he wanted them to expose themselves so they would see what they were really like. He would say things to them that angered them, and they would blow their tops, and then they would realize how far from God they really were. But for, for the average person, he was kind and patient and understanding, never brash, never ran roughshod over their personalities, never stepped all over their rights, he just very kindly and very graciously, very courageously, very frontally told them about, about the way to know God. But he entrusted himself to the Father to get him to the right place at the right time and to say the right thing at the right time. And that takes the pressure off. I really believe the key to evangelism, the key to being useful, in other people's lives, is to simply be available to God. To let God know that you will be available when he wants you, even if it's inconvenient. I, I've discovered that uh, the Lord doesn't always take into consideration our rights and, and privileges and our desire for privacy, and sometimes at the most inopportune time, he brings someone around who needs uh, a word of wisdom. But it's still our responsibility to be available whenever. He gives us the opportunity. One of the problems I have as a minister is that everybody is scared to death of me. And uh, as I've said before, if they could just live in my home and uh, see how frequently I sin, that would probably free them up considerably. But uh, since they just think of me as a preacher, they're, uh, they're, they're frightened. In, in my neighborhood, I never ask anybody what they do because invariably they ask me what I do. And I say, I'm a minister. And they say, Oh, and uh, they never quite know what to say after that. They shuffle their feet and, and clear their throats, and then after a while they look at their watch and, and remember they have a, an, uh, an important appointment to make. And then for the rest of the week they treat me as though I had the dreaded gombu, but uh, I've just learned to live with that. Uh, 
realizing that all I have to do really is just let God know that I'm available to be used. And, and he seems to get me to the right place at the right time to find people who are in need. And to me, that's a very relaxing concept of, of world evangelism. It's really up to God. Our responsibility is to be available and to get out there where people are. As I've said before, <laughs> our problem is that we're like simple Simon. We're fishing, all right, but we're fishing in a barrel. The only friends we know are, are Christian friends. We're not friends of sinners, as Jesus was. Obviously, he was called a friend of sinners because he cultivated friendships with sinners. He didn't live in a vacuum. He didn't spend all of his time with believers. He was out in the world where the need was. He said, I, the physician needs to be where the sick are, not where the well are. Uh, he was accused of being a, a wine-bibber and a glutton because he was, he was spending time doing things that non-believers did. It's out in the world. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't like them morally. Hebrews says he was separate from sinners, vertically separate. He was different in his character, but geographically he was among them. And that's where we need to be, as the Lord was. Just be relaxed and at ease, sensing the urgency of the task, because people are lost without the Lord Jesus. There's no question about that but counting on him to give us what we need. You see, the Lord knows where the fish are. That's clear from the story of the, uh, the this fish story in, in Luke 5. He knew where they were. He could get the disciples to the right place at the right time to catch fish if they just trusted. Their problem was they were working hard without trusting. And Peter says, that's sin. We need to count on him to get us to where the fish are. To count on him to give us the words. As Isaiah puts it, the, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He knows what needs to be said. He knows the hearts of people. He knows their deepest needs. And he'll give us the right word at the right time if we're available. Let me ask you a question. Suppose the Lord were to walk into your office tomorrow morning and he would be surrounded by this motley group of people that normally accompanied him. Uh, you know, the Lord really attracted a very diverse group of people. If you look at the disciples, you get an indication of how, how heterogeneous that group really was. There was one man who was a zealot. That is, he was a, a very strong Jewish nationalist. He would be the equivalent today of an extreme right uh, uh, wing conservative. Another member of his group of disciples was a tax collector who would be a traitor in today's terms. So you have a very broad political band there, and then you have almost every type of person conceivable that followed him. And if it were today, I'm sure there'd be some little short fellow with a gray pinstripe suit, and then there'd be some long-haired kid over here, and you know, all sorts of people. And so they all come into your office Tuesday morning following the Lord. And uh, they gather around your desk, and the Lord says, uh, excuse me a minute, uh, can I use your desk? And uh, you say, well, sure. And so he clears off a few papers, and he gets up on top of your desk, and he begins to preach to this crowd. 
Well, that's exactly what happened to Peter. It's no different. And the question is, are we willing to make our vocations or our homes, our neighborhoods, our shops, our farms, whatever, a platform from which the Lord Jesus can preach through us? Are we available? If we are, then the Lord has every resource that's needed to minister through us to the needs of people around us. Let's stand together, shall we? If you're willing to be involved in this in this task, tell the Lord that you are. He just needs to know that you're available. And if you're fearful, like most of us, tell him that as well. Because that's a very natural reaction. But the Lord's constant word of encouragement is, Fear not, I'm with you. Father, make us willing to venture ourselves to do those things that we dread and fear because we know they're right and because we know you're the one who can equip us. Thank you that you're able, and therefore we are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.